This is the Down East DM Podcast. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us again. I am very excited to be joined today by our guest, Salim Rezaei. For those of you not in the know, kind of in the foam world, Salim uh, completed his medical training at Texas A&M. Uh, he continued to do medical education with a combined EM-IM uh, residency at East Carolina University. And he currently staffs um, many different community hospitals in the greater San Antonio area, in San Antonio, Texas. But most notably, Salim is really known for being the creator, founder, and maintainer of Rebel EM and Rebel Cast, a critical appraisal blog and podcast, respectively. Salim, thank you so much for joining us today. Man, you're just uh, far too kind with that introduction. Just a, hey, this is Sal would have been just fine. But <laughs> thanks thanks for having me on, Jason. I appreciate it. Always fun to record with you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's silly. or It's important people to know your background and your training, but to talk about those things, like, no, we know Salim. Salim's Rebel EM. That's a big, big <laughs> podcast and blog. It's great to have you. Thanks, man. Yeah. So, Salim, we're going to be talking today um, about the skills, priorities, and pitfalls of coding someone particularly focusing on a community hospital setting. Mostly, you know, we want to talk about what saves lives, what we're actually doing to harm people, possibly. It's hard to harm a dead person, but you actually are doing some things that are decreasing their chance of survival and neuro-intact survival. And really, I want to talk about how we can do it right. Then I want to close on a little bit of a ditty, a little conversation about the epi-drip and cardiac arrest. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, sounds like a pan. Let's do it. Awesome. So... First, let's open by explaining to people what saves lives. And in my opinion, it's just two simple realities. There's two hard truths in cardiac arrest, CPR and riding the lightning, defibrillation. That's it. And that's where we see in the literature, those are the only things that are life-saving. So give me your impression on this. Do you agree? Would you add anything to this list? What are your thoughts on what we do that helps? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is the primary focus in cardiac arrest is to do the things that are going to improve the chances of neurologically intact survival. And the way you do that is by increasing cerebral perfusion pressure and coronary perfusion pressure. And to date, as far as I'm aware of in the literature, there's only two things that perform both of those. And that is high quality CPR. And I would add the caveat with minimal interruptions mm -hmm. because you can do high quality CPR and still have too many interruptions or interruptions that are too long and it not be high quality. And the second thing I would say is early defibrillation in the patients who are candidates for that. So VF, VTAC. Perfect. I, I like that sort of physiological explanation. For me, I, I just kind of broke it down into, into two events. But to think about things that are perfusing the organs that matter can help you kind of remember that. So now let's talk a little bit about how we harm people, and you hinted at this a little bit. But we can keep it simple. Anything that keeps us from doing good, high-quality CPR and timely defibrillation is going to be a detriment to our patients. So, Salim, in the community setting, where do you see this occurring most? Yeah, so let me first start by saying all CPR pauses are not created the same. And so what I'm talking about is the Perry shock pause. And one big mistake that I see is that we should be continuing CPR until the defibrillator is completely charged. And then and only then should we hold CPR right when we're ready to push that button. And too often I see people holding compressions while the defibrillator is charging. And it only takes a matter of seconds for that coronary perfusion pressure to drop. And then you get 
ischemic cardiomyocytes and the chances to defibrillate ischemic cardiomyocytes goes down. And so one of the big mistakes I see is that CPR should go all the way up until the defibrillator is charged. And then and then only then do you hold your, your CPR. The second thing that I see that's delaying high quality CPR and is hurting our patients is there seems to be this focus on airway. And in the meantime, you're like neglecting CPR and the days of ABCs are gone. Even the AHA and BLS has changed now. It's, it's CAB, it's circulation airway breathing. So we should be primarily focusing on circulation and not futzing around with trying to get an innovation or getting that airway. What I find very useful is just putting an LMA in, or if you have the man or woman power, just have somebody bag, two-handed bagging technique while the resuscitation is going on. And then the second thing that I see here is with ultrasound. Ultrasound is a really cool option. It tells us a lot about what's going on. We can look for reversible etiologies of the cardiac arrest. But what I see people doing is spending more than 10 seconds on the chest trying to get these clips and assess and interpret. And what's ending up happening is we're prolonging our CPR pauses. And so we have to be really, really careful. So those are the three areas that I see are the things that we are doing that are actually hurting people. So peri uh, peri shock pauses focusing on the airway rather than focusing on circulation and taking too much time with the ultrasound. Absolutely. That, that rings true to me as well. And we are actually working through some of our, our issues in our department with regards to those pauses. And so we've instituted now the sort of 30 second prior, the ramp up for a rhythm check to include a pre-charging of the defibrillator, which I think can help in that area. Obviously you want to take that off the table as you start to get ready for your pause. It, one, alerts the staff that a pause is coming and gets everyone on the same page that that is going to happen. It's going to happen quickly, and we're all going to get back on the chest. And then I love that you talked about the airway because that is a pet peeve of mine. I hate to be sort of involved in a code or hear about a code and hear that you know terrible phrase, hold compressions, please, as someone starts to look into the oral pharynx, you know, We know it's not going to be 10 seconds or less. We know we're going to be doing detriment there. So the LMA is a great idea. I was wondering about your perspective on trying to intubate through compressions. Do you guys ever do that where you are? Yeah, I mean, so most of the shops I work at are are not like big Taj Mahal centers where I have 50 nurses and four respiratory therapists and an ICU team and an anesthetist. That's not how it is. It's me and two nurses and maybe a tech and a security guard, if I'm lucky. That's what I have. And so my focus is always going to be CPR. And we'll get into this in just a minute when we talk about our priority of our code. But my focus is always on high-quality CPR and early defibrillation. And that is my primary focus. And everything else is secondary, falls on the back burner. Um, if I have established good high quality CPR, which at a lot of these facilities we're using mechanical CPR, um, just because again, we don't have the man and woman power to sustain high quality CPR. I mean, you could imagine like after two cycles of running two nurses through, like that's it, you're done. Like everybody's tired. 
So we use mechanical CPR, and once I've got that up and going, I'm looking at the monitor to see on my first rhythm check if I have something that is shockable. Um, and if that's the case, I will shock them. And if that's not the case, then I will start thinking about airway. And when I say thinking about airway, I'm always putting an LMA in. It's only after I get ROSC that I'll actually intubate because, again, your focus needs to be on coronary and cerebral perfusion pressure. And I, I think we waste too much time, not just in the community, even in these bigger facilities on airway, when we know that that is not what's helping our patient. And just to take it one step further, when you intubate a patient – you're now taking them from a negative pressure system to a positive pressure system. So you're increasing intrathoracic pressure. Well, guess what that does? That decreases your venous return to the heart. Secondly, what I find is when somebody's intubated and people are stressed out and all that adrenaline is pumping, they tend to hyperbag these patients. And so all these things, I think, are detriments to our patients. And so, no, I am not actually intubating through the CPR. I'm actually placing an LMA. And if I happen to have somebody who's able to bag, I'll have them bag until I get ROSC. Okay. Do you have a preference for LMA over bagging? It depends on what I have set up. Yeah, Yeah, no, it just, it depends on what I've got available. So like, if it's like a backdoor drop-off where I didn't have time to prepare things, um, it's probably not going to be an LMA. It's probably going to be a bag valve mask. If it's an EMS call where I've gotten a heads up, I usually have all my equipment out and ready to go so that all I have to do is just drop the LMA in and inflate the balloon and we're good to go. Sure. So it, it's all dependent on what's coming in and how it comes in. Okay. And yeah, so just to get into that, the, the details of that a little bit further, there is, um, surprisingly not great data showing superiority of the LMA over an end title or even bagging itself um, in cardiac arrest. I think in, in part that's probably because of the difficulty in heterogeneity there, the time it takes to intubate, the types of LMAs using, whether or not that's paramedics or ourselves placing the LMA, the king, etc. But the literature hasn't borne out to show a major uh, improvement in neurologic outcome in using an LMA or a uh, superglottic device compared to intubating. That said, there is some data out there that we've seen that shows really long pauses with relation to trying to place an ET tube during cardiac arrest. It is very difficult to do. So while there might not be a clear signal of benefit, we have some seen some pretty clear signals of harm when we're taking the time to stop pause compressions for these, these ET tubes. Would that be an accurate representation of the literature from your perspective? No, absolutely. And again, you're right. It's a heterogeneous population. It is really hard to study. But my anecdotal, I guess, thought on this is that once you start focusing on the airway, it's like you get tunnel vision. Everything else gets forgotten. And again, I think that we're doing more harm focusing on that airway right off the bat, and it should all be about perfusion, perfusion, perfusion. That is what makes people – I mean, who cares if you got the successful intubation and the patient lives and they're traked and pegged for the rest of their life? That's not a win in my opinion. The person who can walk out of the hospital maybe with a little bit of a limp, that's a win after a cardiac arrest. And so focusing on airway – 
I agree with you. I, I just I think we're doing it wrong. We don't need to be innovating these people kind of stay and play right versus uh, scoop and swoop. Um, I think that we should focus on CPR and get them to a facility where there's more man or woman power to to be able to do this stuff. And so I, I'm not aware of any literature that says LMA is inferior or causing harm um, or bag valve mask for that matter compared to endotracheal uh, intubation. But I do find that we're futzing around too much with airways when we try and do intubation. And then it's not just the intubation itself, right, Jason? It's it's also that all the things that come with that, the like we just talked about, the, the positive pressure ventilation, the decreased venous return, the hyper bagging, these things are all bad. So it's not just the intubation itself. It's all the things that come along with that as well. Perfect. Yeah. Well said. Couldn't agree more. Um, so yeah, we've tiptoed around a little bit and, and the reason I wanted to get you here is to pick your mind and get your mental construct essentially on in the community hospitals where you work, when a code comes in, how do you break down? How do you approach these codes? We're going to talk a little bit about some of the micro skills, but mostly I want to get your sort of priority list and how you do it day to day with the staff that you have. Yeah. That's a tough one, right? Um, I, I think the reality is that most of this stuff is happening simultaneously. I mean, that's the reality. It, it's multiple moving parts. It's like an orchestra that's going on. It's not just focus on CPR. The nurses are doing things. The techs are doing things. And so it's, it's really a lot. Um, but again, we've said this from the beginning. If I had to make a list and I had to say this is the number one thing, this is the number two thing, CPR will always be number one. High-quality CPR minimizing pauses. Next is early defibrillation because these are the only two things that have been shown to improve neurologically intact survival in cardiac arrest. Now, we can get into the, I guess – discussion of whether we should be using mechanical versus manual CPR. As far as I'm aware of, every randomized clinical trial that has looked at these devices compared to man or woman power has not shown benefit, but it's also not shown harm. And I have my reasons why I think that is, but I don't have the man or woman power to continue high quality CPR for 30 or 45 minutes. I just don't have it. And so I have to use what I have available. And so that's a Lucas device. That's what I have at all my shops. And so that's what we're using for CPR. And the way I go about doing this is when I know I have a patient coming in in cardiac arrest, I'll take the back of that Lucas device and I'll have it on the stretcher. It's already there. Then we'll move the patient over. And so now the patient's on the ED stretcher already on the back of the Lucas device. And then I have one of the nurses or techs slap on the top of the Lucas device and turn it on. So there's very minimal pause in that transition. And the CPR is now being focused on. And then the next thing I do with that is I ensure that it is sort of in a location that I think is going to be most optimal. So oftentimes what I'll see is people will put these devices on and they're just not pumping in the right part of the chest. They're, they're like up by the trachea and that's not helping the patient. So you want to make sure that you can just kind of place it as best as you can. I know we're talking about TEE and some of these things in the future. Uh, Again, I have my thoughts on why that's not probably for community docs, but you, you want to make sure this device is where it needs to be on the chest for what you think is the most optimal position. 
The next thing you're going to do is get your defibrillator pads on. And at your first rhythm check, you're going to look and see if there's something shockable. So CPR, Lucas device, defibrillation, the same things we've been talking about from the beginning. Now, after that, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to work on access. So I mean IO access, because what I don't want to do is task my nurses with getting IVs in this patient who's got the ultimate low flow state, completely clamped down, sticking him with whatever needle they can get wherever. I actually am going to put bilateral humeral IOs in my patient. And there's several reasons for that. Number one, it takes like five seconds to do. Number two, it's a 15-gauge needle close to the central circulation. So if there's any medication I'm thinking about as we get further down the algorithm, I can run it through there. If there's fluids I want to run, I can run it through there. The reason I like IOs is they're like peripheral IVs, only they're non-compressible, right? So they're non-compressible veins, basically, because it's bone trabeculae. And it's so close to the central circulation that they are functioning like a central line. It's it's like having two central lines put in in 10 seconds. So that's the very next thing that I'm going to do. Then the next thing is usually we need to focus on airway. And we've already spent quite a bit of time talking about this. It's not intubating the patient. I'm either going to have somebody bagging the patient for me or I'm going to just place an LMA if I had time to prepare. And again, the reasons to not intubate these patients are hyperbagging, increased intrathoracic pressure, decreasing venous return. These are all reasons to not do that. It's only after I've achieved ROS that I'll consider changing out that LMA for an actual endotracheal tube. Now, the next thing I'll do is I'll connect an end tidal CO2 monitor. And this by no means is going to be an exact number, right? This is, it's not a closed loop. Most of the data that talks about accuracy of end tidal CO2 talks about in the intubated patient population. So this is not exactly a person who's intubated when you're doing back valve mask or LMA, but it's pretty close. It's, it's better than just doing compared to room air. And it does give us a nice surrogate as to how compressions are going. I do think ultrasound is probably ultimately better, but again, this is just a nice quick, it's a piece of equipment you attach, it's good to go. Again, everything we've talked about is about efficiency, cognitively offloading, and being as fast as possible. Now that I've got all these things in place, the next thing I'm going to do is get my ultrasound machine. I usually use a phased array probe, and I have it in the sub-xiphoid area. So this is while CPR is going on because I don't want to ask the nurses to stop the Lucas device while I'm trying to look for the heart. So I'm looking for quick things. I'm looking for tamponade, cardiac activity. And the important thing here is, one, you've got to have some system of making sure that you're not futzing around so much on the chest that you're prolonging that pause to greater than 10 seconds. And the second thing is, is have that ultrasound probe on while CPR is going. You won't get the best view, but you'll kind of know where you need to be so that when CPR stops, that you have the most optimal view with the least amount of time, excuse me, and then hit the record button. So what you're not trying to do is you're not trying to get images and interpret them at the same time. You're just trying to get the best possible images during that 10 seconds that you have. And then you resume CPR, and then you go back and look at your loop recording. And that loop recording is where you do all your assessment and diagnostic stuff. The other reason I think echo is so important at this part of the algorithm is it helps distinguish between something that's really important here. 
And so it's not looking for VF, VTAC, that sort of thing. It's the PEA patients, pulseless electrical activity. And it's been shown in the literature that feeling for a pulse, we're terrible at it. Um, especially in somebody who's shocky, who maybe has a systolic blood pressure of 60. More often than not, we're not going to feel it. But I think that distinction needs to be made in our pulseless electrical activity patients of somebody who's actually got mechanical activity versus somebody who's got true uh, electrical mechanical dissociation. Um, I think it was Scott Weingart that came up with these terms, and I really like them because they make sense as to what I'm trying to say. They are PREM and PRESS. So PREM stands for pulseless rhythm echocardiographic with echocardiographic motion, and PRESS stands for pulseless rhythm with echocardiographic standstill. And the reason I make this distinction is because one of these is actually profound shock. The second is true PEA, and the distinction is important because in the former, what we need is inotropic and pressor support, and the latter actually needs more high-quality CPR. And I don't think we should be throwing all these patients into one basket and just calling them PEA asystole. I think these are very nuanced patients, and ultrasound helps us find that difference. That was fantastic. I was like, oh, this is great. This is such an awesome construct and structure. Um, and each of these sort of steps, so we're going to kind of put this, this not really algorithm, right? Because as you said, it's not A, go on to B, B, go on to C. These elements of a prioritized code uh, into the show notes. But I want to break them down real quick. First, I'm going to you know kind of go over each element. And then I have a couple questions in each area. But fantastic construct. And I completely agree with everything you said. So first... High-quality CPR, early defibrillation are our priority, and that's kind of the way, that's our mantra. That's how we want to approach all these codes. The first thing for you is placing the Lucas device in the community. Then you want to get your defibrillator pads on. You want to make sure that you have good IO access, bilateral humeral IOs. Then you're putting in an LMA, attaching an end title monitor to that LMA. And when all of this is set up, you start to get ready for your focus, your focused ultrasound assessment. And you're looking mostly in cases of PEA to distinguish cardiac standstill from cardiac motion. So that's your construct. Let's go back. A, to, oh, go ahead. That, well, I was going to say that's exactly right. And one, one point I want to make about that before we get into the questions is, did you hear me mention anything about medications at any point in that construct? Nope, not one medicine was ordered. I, yeah, the bicarb. You didn't talk about how important bicarb is. Yeah, yeah, bicarb, <laughs> epi, all these things that we give that have never been shown to make any difference in neurologically intact survival. So, again, focusing on the patient, doing the things that matter. At no point have I mentioned medications. I know we're going to talk about epi here in just a minute, but I just wanted to make that point that it's it's really important that so many people work on getting this IV access and giving these medications, but really it's all the other stuff that we need to focus on, and medications are a secondary thought in my mind. Perfect. I agree. The way I sort of think about that in a very juvenile way is that scene in Zoolander where he's trying to walk down the runway and focusing on the task of killing the Malaysian prime minister, and there's all the beautiful people and they're saying, don't get distracted by all the beautiful people in the room. For me, the beautiful people is that airway, trying to get an awesome endotracheal intubation or talking about some of the crazy medications that we consider and use. These are just distractions. They're beautiful distractions from what we really need to be doing. 
So I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else, but in my mind, that's how it works. Totally agree with that. All right. Um, so let's go the first step, the Lucas. So that's something that's new to us in my uh, in my neck of the woods. And I had a question for you regarding its placement. Yeah. We were discussing in that one of the problems that we see, and I'm sure is nearly universal, is as EMS brings the patient in, oftentimes you see that one-armed, over-a-high-stretcher CPR, and it took them a couple minutes to get out of the rig. Did you guys ever consider placing the Lucas in the ambulance during the transfer there? And why why do it in the department instead? Yeah, so I, there's a couple of answers to this question. So what I would say is a lot of our EMS systems actually have Lucas devices on oh, the wow. rigs. Um, and so they're actually coming in with the Lucas devices. It's, it's very few uh, providers that don't have it. The reason I think that you don't see it out in pre-hospital settings is how much these things cost. Mm -hmm. They are so expensive. Um, They're not cheap. And a lot of people argue that they don't make a difference. But, you know, I think if I asked you a question, Jason, and I said, you're in the back of a moving ambulance that's, you know, rushing to get to the hospital, and I'm going to ask you to do CPR versus strapping on this machine to do the CPR, which one do you think would give the better CPR? <laughs> you getting thrown around in the back of the ambulance and potentially harming yourself or the mechanical device? And I hope the answer is the mechanical device here. Absolutely. And But a lot of people seem they just don't have the money in, in smaller rural towns. They don't have the money to afford these devices. And so a lot of people are coming in with that one-handed, like overhand technique that you're talking about, um, which I don't think is optimal. But we, in our system, in San Antonio at least, uh, a lot of our ambulance providers are coming in already with Lucas devices attached to the patient. Okay. and But if they're not, you, you guys have a system in place where you'll be having your stretcher ready, you have the backboard of the Lucas ready for the transfer onto the, your gurney while your EMS crew, you're hoping to have them keep high-quality CPR going until you get your Lucas on. Exactly. So what I, this is my, my opinion here. Okay. So opinion being interjected. Mm -hmm. I think when you look at a lot of these mechanical CPR studies, especially the earlier ones, I don't think we had a really good idea of how we were supposed to put these things on. And so I think there was probably delays um, with how long people were not getting high quality CPR till the device was put on. And I think you have to be really efficient because that's a pause, right? It's a pause and it's a detrimental pause, especially early on. So I usually like to ask my EMS providers, do you have them on mechanical CPR or are you guys doing manual CPR when they're calling it in? And if they tell me manual CPR, I have the back of the Lucas device on the stretcher ready to go. And one person's task is once we have the patient moved over to attach the two sides of the Lucas to the back and start the machine. So that it minimizes that pause. And so what I find is a lot of people will come in and with having manual CPR, they haven't thought ahead, they have the mechanical device. And then there's this whole like messy concert of rolling the patient over, getting the back of the Lucas device on, getting them centered on it, then getting the top of it on. This has to be something that's practiced in simulation and practiced ahead of time so that it can be efficient. And I think that's why we saw in a lot of the earlier studies, we didn't see any improvement. Um, Again, we didn't see harm, but we didn't see improvement either. I think there was this initial delay 
and getting that mechanical device on. Whereas with manual CPR, you just go right into it. Even though it's a lower quality, at least you're getting some perfusion pressure. Sure. Again, my opinion, that may not actually be the case. That's just my my takeaway from all those randomized trials. That that makes sense to me too. And I, I totally agree. It's a head scratcher to me why a machine doing consistent depth of compression, full recoil every time, no fatiguing of the device, why it's not bearing out in the literature to show benefit. I could see some of those questions and concerns that you're bringing up. For me, the point is moot because if it can cognitively offload the group and you know you're always going to have good quality CPR, whether or not the data shows that it's improving more uh, survivability, as long as it's not showing detriment, I think there's a huge benefit to that. Yeah, the second thing I would say with that is, do you know in these studies with these thousands of patients, do you know where that Lucas device was placed on those patients? Right, yeah, no. You could don't. Have too low, too sub It could have been too low, yep. exactly. So it's another reason that I think we don't see the improvement is we're just not familiar with the device. We slap it on and assume because it's pumping that we're doing high-quality CPR when really you're up by the aortic root. Sure. As an example. And so I think we that that that's the reason you're not seeing the benefit. I mean, it's the, the initial delay of getting it on. And then where were the devices actually put on? There's no report of that in any of these studies. And so if you're not familiar with the device and you slap it on, of course, you're not going to get any benefit with that. Perfect. So the next point that you had was the um, the next sort of step in the algorithm or consideration is the defibrillator pad placement. And for me, this is kind of one of those examples where it's not one, two, three, but everything can be happening relatively lap- rapidly and almost simultaneously. It should be an anterior posterior approach, right? For most of these, um, if you, especially if you're using Lucas and when you're getting the patient from EMS stretcher over to your stretcher, that's the opportune time to place the posterior pad. And then they're laying right onto your Lucas posterior board. Does that sound right to you? That's absolutely right. Again, you want to be thinking about this ahead of time. You need to have this equipment out. And so you're exactly right. And this is what I was trying to say earlier is it's not actually step one, step two. A lot of this stuff is happening at the same time. And so, yes, I like anterior posterior um, placement of my pads. And so I will make sure that somebody has the pads out with the posterior one ready to go so that we can throw it on the patient as we're moving them over to the back of the Lucas device. So the reality is, is I'm not putting Lucas device on first and then trying to figure out how to get this pad on. The pad actually goes on as the patient's moving over. Perfect. And then once they're down, CPR has begun. You start working on access. I love the idea of the humoral IO when sort of researching this topic a little bit. You know, there's multiple sites, obviously, where you can place the I.O. You place one of the more common ones is the proximal tibia, but also consideration for the humeral. And actually, in your your blog, you've talked about some of the success rates for different I.O. placement sites. And we are probably, we're the most consistent when we go proximal tibia. And I just kind of had a, uh, I, I wish there was more supportive literature for the humeral. Because of the reasons you mentioned, you know, you can take a look at videos um, where patients take out or people take out the clavicle in a cadaver, place a humeral IO, and you see the subclavian vein dilate immediately upon infusion. You have basically a central line, as you mentioned. One of the problems is going to be sort of the anatomical placement and, and a higher failure rate for the humeral over the tibial. But if you're good at what you do and you are able to find the right anatomy, I think the humeral uh, is the way to go. 
Yeah, I you know, it's it's just like any other procedure, Jason. Uh, if you don't have comfort in doing it or you haven't practiced it, of course you're going to have a higher unsuccess rate at the beginning. And in a lot of the the trials that you look at, most of them were pre-hospital. There are some in hospital. And when you actually survey the people that are putting in the IOs, they felt most comfortable with the proximal tibial than they did with the humeral IO. And that may be the reason why you see a higher success rate with the proximal tibia. Again, not knowing how to do something is not an excuse, but in the heat of the moment, I would go with what is comfortable for you. So if I'm out in the pre-hospital world and I'm really comfortable with proximal tib, well, you know what? That's better than no access, right? It's not optimal, but it's the best. Then that's what I'm going to do. But We should have programs that train us how to do what is best. And what is best, in my opinion, with IOs is proximal humeral um, placement. And so we need to have practice with cadavers and simulation and that sort of stuff. So if it's something we're not comfortable with, it's something we should become comfortable with. But that being said, I agree with you. We shouldn't be doing things that we haven't tried or practiced or feel comfortable with. So we have to go with the things that are most comfortable as long as they are not causing harm. The problem with proximal tibia, yes, higher success rate, but it's about as far away as you can get from the central circulation. Right. And there's this thought of maybe if you have a low cardiac output state and you put a proximal tibial IO, what are the chances that you're going to cause enough cardiac output and perfusion pressure to circulate whatever you're pulling into that tibia to get around to the central circulation. And I don't know the exact answer to that. There are some people that think there's a pooling effect where there's just venous stasis and nobody gets that medication around. And there's others that say, well, it's a prolonged time before it actually makes it up to the central circulation. And this is why I used to advocate for the proximal tibia, but after reading and running more codes with it, I've realized that the humeral head is the way to go. So just some some thoughts on that. Perfect. I agree as well. So if we can get a line in a, an arrest patient that's essentially a central line, we need to be good at doing it. Avoid those miss rates and give the patient the, the benefit of the better procedure, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Perfect. So and then we kind of went on. You mentioned the next step for you is the LMA. And really, again, probably another example of things happening simultaneously you should probably have your end tidal CO2 monitoring hooked up to your bag, ready to attach to your LMA. You drop your LMA, you hook up the bag, that loop is done. We've talked a fair bit already about sort of maintaining or gaining airway control, so I don't think we need to beat a dead horse, but that makes sense to me. So the next thing you mentioned, and I want to talk a little bit more about this, is POCUS. So I, I like the idea of using the subxiphoid view, getting a sense of where you are, the anatomy, getting a visualization of what you can while CPR is in progress. And then during your pauses, it sounds like you're doing some of the more fine-tuned assessment. You're grabbing a recording and reviewing that recording when CPR begins again. Is that right? Yeah. I. You know, the thing is, is in the heat of the moment, uh, our concept of time is really warped. And what I see is people put the ultrasound probe on and they think that they're only taking 10 seconds, but the reality is they're probably taking longer. Absolutely. And I've talked to several people about this and having somebody count out loud, like that is their sole 
sole task to make sure that you don't <laughs> go over 10 seconds or having one of those like automated timers that count out loud mm-hmm. um, would be probably even more ideal so that you know that, okay, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, resume CPR. That's it. You don't, you don't get longer. Um, and so I think you have to pay attention to that is how long you're taking with that. The second reason I like having it on the subxiphoid view while CPR is going on is that it, it's not optimal, but it kind of gives me an idea of how compressions are happening on the heart. So sometimes I'll adjust my Lucas device based on what I'm seeing from that subxiphoid view. Like I'm not really seeing good compressions on the left ventricle, for example. Um, and that's something I didn't mention at the beginning, but I think is also very useful um, with ultrasound. And it's without pausing CPR, right? You're doing something good for the patient. Um, and then I do think that distinction between, I don't know, some people call it pseudo PEA versus true PEA, but really it's, it's profound shock versus mm-hmm. true PEA. Um, because in one sense there is mechanical activity and in the other there's not. And I think they need to be treated differently and not just all lumped together, learning the five H's and five T's. Oh yeah. That drives me crazy trying to go over that with people or when people start instituting that talk about rather than cognitively offloading, cognitively fatiguing yourself during a code is trying to remember and go through all the H's and T's. So yeah, we'll we'll drop some links to some sort of better approaches to PEA, if you will. But I completely agree that really kind of the width of the QRS complex, if you have them, um, obviously it's PEA, so you should be having some electrical activity and being able to assess the width of that QRS. What The narrow versus wide QRS are, is one branch point. And then the other one is focused on ultrasound and that idea of cardiac motion versus cardiac standstill. I think that's a much better approach to PEA. And I'll actually say that uh, I think it was 2014 or 2015 um, was the paper, was the Littman paper that looked at wide complex versus narrow complex PEA. There was actually a subsequent study in the inpatient world that kind of debunked that. And I know I have it on one of my blog posts where I talked about uh, wide complex versus narrow complex. Mm-hmm. But the reality was is like the patients were all over the place, that it actually didn't pan out. It's a great thought uh, the way they they talked about that. Um, what I, I think is probably a better strategy is not to think of it as a wide complex and narrow complex in PEA. I think you put the ultrasound probe on and you look for cardiac activity versus no cardiac activity, and then you look for reversible causes. And by far and away, the most common reversible cause is cardiac tamponade. And then the second most common is going to be PE. Mm-hmm. And then the third, third thing you're looking for is uh, for cardiac activity. Um, and so I find that that is probably a more useful thing when we get to medications and and we're going to get into these in just a second. Um, what's it going to hurt to give a patient an amp of calcium gluconate, um, during a code situation? I'm not aware of any harms of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but if let's say it's hyperkalemia or some toxidrome or something like that, it's, it, what does it hurt to just give one amp, uh, regardless of how, wide or narrow the QRS complex is. And I actually have a podcast coming out on Rebelcast here in the next few weeks. And I sit down and talk with Scott Weingart and Joe Belezzo. And we talk about that wide versus narrow complex uh, algorithm for PEA. And there has been a subsequent study that it just didn't pan out. Interesting. Uh, 
So I think it's better to look at it as cardiac activity, no cardiac activity, reversible causes, um, and that's just probably a better way to go about doing it. Okay. That's interesting. I'm, I'll look forward to that uh, post as well. And then um, I, I think we should just sort of re-hammer home this point. We're trying to do things of benefit, right? We're trying to avoid pauses in, de- in uh, defibrillation and compression. So while POCUS is a fantastic tool, we'll drop a link to an article that got some recent attention in the foam world about when we're doing this, as you said, time is arbitrary. You really don't know how long you're delaying yourself unless someone is actively keeping track of that for you. And we've seen that with increased use of ultrasound, we've had increased pauses. So that's a huge element to stay stay on top of and pay attention to. All right, so we've talked a little bit about this and we hinted at the idea that we wanted to get into it. As we get towards the close of this, we're starting to talk about medications. And really what I want to talk with you about here is the EpiDrip. So Salim, tell me about why you do this, your thought processes behind it, and then we'll get into how you actually execute it in your department. Yeah. And I just, I do want to say one more thing because I find it in the foam world that people get all excited about an idea and and they forget about the basics and the basics are what are the most essential things here. So the basics are high quality CPR. I've got that underway. I've now got my patient with defibrillator pads. Is there something I can shock them out of? Uh, I get my LMA device and end tidal CO2 attached to that, and then my access, which is two proximal IOs. And then with ultrasound, I'm looking for reversible causes. It's only then that I'm turning my attention to epi drips, A lines, and some of the things that we're going to get into. So it's not before all that. And so what I don't want people doing is putting in A lines and kind of superventing all this other stuff that we've just been spending all this time talking about. Mm-hmm. It's only after I've completed all those tasks that we'll we'll get into this and and we'll talk about it. And this is certainly not feasible in the community and every patient, but I certainly try my best uh, to try and do these things. So let's get into the epi drip. So I don't have pre-made epi drips ready to go at some of the shops that I work at. So what's the fastest epi I have? It's going to be the one amp of epinephrine in my crash cart. And what I like to do is slam that one amp into a liter of whatever you want, lactated ringers, normal saline, plasma light. I know there's all this talk about balanced versus unbalanced crystalloids, but put it in your liter of whatever and run it in as fast as it will go with a pressure bag. And I promise you that if with an IO, you will get that in within about three minutes, which is the same as pushing an amp right away, which is going to be much faster, right? You're pushing that amp over just a few seconds. And I'm talking about maybe running this over just a few minutes uh, Uh with a pressure bag. Meanwhile, I have one of my nurses uh, working on an actual epi drip. And while they're getting that all mixed up, um, I'm thinking of a dose. And I usually start my dose at 0.5 micrograms per kilo minute. And I titrate to my patient need. And this is where you're talking about A-lines. I don't have a reason why I started that dose. I just felt like it was a good dose to start at. There's really not a lot of evidence on where to start, but I think there is some evidence on to just start epi. Now, before we get into talking about the A-line, I think it's important to understand why epi and why is a drip. 
And the benefits of epinephrine are it increases coronary perfusion pressure and potentially enhances cardiac activity. That's a little controversial in low flow state patients in cardiac arrest. But too much epinephrine, too much, which is my thought with giving a milligram waiting three minutes, giving a milligram waiting three minutes, can decrease cerebral perfusion pressure by causing vasoconstriction, and it can also increase myocardial oxygen demand. So if you have somebody who's having an MI as the cause of their cardiac arrest, I'm now making them more ischemic. So there's got to be a balance of how much epi is needed. And I don't think giving these one milligram boluses is the way to do it, and I think it's probably too much for a lot of patients. Um, the other reason I like the drip is it's a cognitive offload. So now I don't have to remember, is it three minutes? Is it five minutes? Is it time for the next epi? How much epi have we already given? I think it it helps maintain coronary and cerebral perfusion pressure in a more linear fashion. I never understood why we give a milligram of epi, watch it take off like a roller coaster, and then watch it wear off. And then we give another milligram. And there's this roller coaster of sympathetic drive and then crash, sympathetic drive and then crash. And then the final reason is when we actually achieve ROSC, the number one reason patients will code again is because of post-ROSC hypotension. And I find that having an epi drip really decreases that. Um, because what happens once you get ROSC? What do you stop giving your patient? You stop giving them the milligram epinephrine boluses. And so I think the drip works in multiple, multiple, multiple ways. Now, the final thing I'm going to say is that people might think I'm a cowboy for saying this. I do live in Texas, down in San Antonio. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm a bit of a cowboy, but there have been seven or eight randomized clinical trials looking at the use of epinephrine in the current way that we use it, which is one milligram every three to five minutes. None have showed improved mortality with good neuro outcomes. Half showed increased ROSC, and two actually showed increased mortality, which is this balancing act that I'm talking about, about giving too much epi versus giving not enough. Again, the roller coaster never made sense to me. Give a milligram, watch it wear off. Give a milligram, watch it wear off. That just never made sense. So these are my thoughts on why epi drip um, as opposed to giving the milligram boluses. The next part we're going to get into, and before we get into it, I'll let you ask whatever questions you want, is how do you actually titrate the epi? And I think that's the part we're going to talk about with the A-line and, and tidal CO2. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's a that's a great introduction to the idea. I like kind of the physiologic explanation. You know, certainly I, I feel like and always you have to be cautious when you use anecdote to sort of justify something, but I think we've all seen those patients where we, we're pretty sure we know they're they're dead and they're not coming back and people are dosing epi kinda of at that three minute mark. Sometimes they're going, Oh, every two minutes and they're just really flogging the heart with epinephrine and that can possibly make a heart beat. But that person, in the circumstances I'm remembering, they were not going to have neurointact survival. And the second that roller coaster, you know, comes off of the peak and goes into a trough, they code again. And you have that up and down where they need huge boluses to flog a heart into beating. But that's not what we're looking for, right? We're looking for a, a true res return of spontaneous circulation and a phys under physiologic parameters. So I, I agree, and that makes a lot of sense to me, so... Yeah, let's get into how you do this in a sort of a micro-scale way in your community hospital. 
Yeah. So again, lone doctor, two nurses, a tech, maybe a security guard. So A-line is definitely not one of my priorities, at least initial um, part of the resuscitation. So one thing we did talk about is with the LMA, you can put an end tidal CO2 monitor on your patient. And again, this is not 100% accurate. It's just a rough estimate. It's one piece of many pieces that we have. Um, POCUS is another option that we have to see how our compressions, what our heart's doing, reversible causes we've talked about. None of the things we're going to talk about are supposed to be used in isolation. It's using multiple ones in, in synchrony with each other. Now, the most easiest thing to do in the community is end tidal CO2. Is it the most optimal? Probably not. But it at least gives me a ballpark estimate. It's better than driving blind. So the way I do this is I look at my end tidal CO2 and the number that sticks in my head is 20, 20 millimeters of mercury. So if my end tidal CO2 is less than 20 millimeters of mercury, then I know I need to optimize my CPR and I need to improve cardiac output so I can improve perfusion. So in these patients, I actually will give a milligram of epinephrine as a bolus, the AMP of uh, cardiac epi, mm-hmm. and then I'll follow that with an epi drip. And the thought here is, is that whatever I'm doing is not even getting me to an end tidal CO2 of 20 or greater. And so I need to do something to get it jump started. So the first thing I'm going to do is optimize CPR, but then the next thing is I'm also going to give a milligram of epi in the hopes that that will help jump start things. If my end tidal CO2 is already greater than 20, I just start the low-dose epidrip because that means that this patient should hopefully have some form of perfusion going on, whether it's from CPR itself because you're doing such a good job or they actually have ROSC. And mm. again, we said the number one cause of post-ROSC cardiac arrest is a drop in the blood pressure. So in the patients where my end tidal CO2 is greater than 20, I know that the CPR is either going really well or I've achieved ROSC. They don't need a milligram of epi. At that point, what I need is a low-dose epidrip to help maintain their cardiac output. So this is step one, or the first thing I will do to titrate my epidrip. Again, not optimal, not perfect. There's a lot of caveats to it, but that's just a rough kind of how I start. Perfect. I, I actually think that I would, I wonder if you allow for this correction. You said it's, it's not optimal, it's not perfect. I think it's probably not perfect, but in the clinical setting, it's optimal. It's the best you have. Yeah, it's the best you have, and it's most efficient. Um, And the reason I mean by not optimal, I guess I should clarify that because that's a great point, is that there is something better, and that's Mm. an A-line. And and so that's what I mean by that. But you have to use what you have available and what you have the time to use. So you're absolutely right in your statement. So then the next thing is an A-line. And so where does this happen? And again, After I've done all the things that I need to do, I've focused on everything, the A-line will be kind of the end of my priority list. And some might argue that it should be at the top of the priority list. But again, it's just me. I don't have a lot of hands helping me. So I want to focus on the things that are going to help my patient. If I was working at a big ivory tower facility, I would have somebody working on an A-line right from the get-go so that we have it ready to go. Um, But I don't. And so this is why it falls lower in the list for me. Now, where do I put my A-line? I don't mess around with radials. 
Uh, I think they're small. I think they're clamped down. I think they are really hard to get, especially when somebody's getting active CPR. So the optimal location for me is the femoral. And this is a big vessel. It, even if it's clamped down, the uh, the chance of hitting it is going to be a lot better than a radial. And you can quickly slap an ultrasound on and distinguish from a central venous access from a uh, central arterial access. I usually put this in sew it in quickly and get it connected. I usually have the nurses have the A-line set up ready to go again ahead of time because this all takes man and woman power to get going. But if I was going to choose a location, it would be femoral and it would be again at the end of my list. Now, how do I titrate my epi with that? Let's say I did have the opportunity to get that A-line in. It's all about the diastolic blood pressure because that's when the coronaries are perfused. And so if you look at the AHA guidelines, they recommend a diastolic blood pressure of greater than 25 millimeters of mercury. There's lots of people, though, that actually argue to shoot for something higher, like 35 or 40. And the reason for this is that we may not actually be achieving good coronary perfusion pressure with a diastolic pressure of 25 because our central our central venous pressure excuse me may actually be higher than what we think it is in a low flow state and so by shooting for a higher diastolic blood pressure we're going to get better coronary perfusion pressure mm-hmm. so let's, re- let's remind yeah. people that we're doing our coronary perfusion during diastole right we're, it's a backfill event so we're, that's why we're probably it makes sense to me. That's why we're focusing on our diastolic pressure because we want that backflow into our coronaries. Absolutely. So the way I'm using this is once I have my A-line in, if my diastolic blood pressure is less than 35, again, I'm optimizing CPR. That's, again, always coming back to CPR. Mm-hmm. I will give a one milligram epinephrine bolus, kind of like we did for an end tidal CO2 of less than 20, and then I'll immediately start my epi drip. If my diastolic blood pressure is greater than 35 to 40, I first of all, I want to know, does my patient have electrical activity with that? Do they have, or I'm sorry, mechanical activity with that? And do they just need some support? And in these patients, I'm not giving an epi bolus. I'm actually just starting a drip and I'm titrating that. So if I have a higher diastolic pressure or higher end tidal CO2, those are the patients where I know I'm either doing really good CPR or my mechanical devices at least, and or I have ROSC and my patient just needs some support. So I'm not bolusing epi in those patients. I am just doing the epi drip. In the patients where my diastolic pressure is low or my end tidal CO2 is low, I'm again focusing on CPR, optimizing where the thing is located, making sure that we're doing good CPR, giving that milligram bolus, and then titrating my epi drip to maintain that diastolic blood pressure greater than 35 to 40 or that end tidal CO2 greater than 20. Fantastic. I love that. I think it's pretty pretty easy to wrap your mind around when you get those numbers down and I think if people are going to be obviously talking about doing this, they need to be doing the reading. They need to be looking into the, the constructs that people have. I know you and Swami are people that have used it in the past, but there's not a lot of numbers to work with here, right? You're looking at your end title, and 20 is your number. Less than 20, you're giving the amp, and then you're starting the drip. Greater than 20, you're just doing the drip. Once you get your A-line placed, then you're looking at your diastolic blood pressure. You're saying that many people will use 25 because of the AHA recommendations, but you're looking at a diastolic less than 35 or 40, and it's the same construct. You're going to give the amp if it's less than that, and then start the drip. If it's above that, you're just starting the drip. 
That's exactly it. I, I like things simple, um, as most ER docs do. Yes. Keep it simple, stupid, right? That's that's our mantra mostly in the emergency department. All right. Well, so I think that's a great little review there on the EpiDrip. I I like the the physiology behind it. Again, I've I feel like we've done detriment where we've just slammed people with epinephrine and you can flog hard into beating, but you know, when it's only directly after giving a one milligram huge dose of epinephrine and it lasts for one minute and then they code again. Is that really what we're looking for? Trying to get a more of a true physiologic state with a, a systolic diastolic blood pressure that you can titrate, you can manipulate in a sort of a real-time assessment with this A-line. It makes a lot of sense to me. It's something that I'm hoping to start instituting in my institution. So Salim, thank you so much for reviewing that with me. I, I love the idea and I uh, would love to hear people's opinion on it as well. If others are doing it out there in the foam community, where you've had success, where you've had failures, please let it get that information back to us. I think it'll be great for our listeners. No, I, you know, I appreciate you having me on. And I know this is a very controversial topic. And, and again, if somebody were to come on and say, there's absolutely zero evidence to like support this, I, I can't argue with that. This is just my opinion of the physiology and how things work. But I would rebuttal to that as there's also been several randomized clinical trials that have come out that have showed that epi one milligram Q three to five minutes also doesn't increase mortality or doesn't improve mortality, excuse me, either. And so until we get something better, you know, the paramedic two trial is currently underway and maybe that will answer the question of whether we should be giving epi in the current fashion that it's recommended. Um, It may show us that we're doing this all wrong. My concept here is that every person is an individual, their physiology is individual, their comorbidities are individual, and doing things that are going to improve perfusion pressure, doing things that happen in a more linear fashion, like doing epi drips, is the way to go. Using POCUS to see what each individual person's heart is doing or what they're needing is the way to go. We can't do this canned algorithm of CPR, two minutes, pulse check, CPR, time for a milligram of epi. I don't think that's the way to optimally do CPR. And I think if we're doing those things that we are doing a disservice to our patients. Um, I also think that when you think about these BLS guidelines, these things were not created for people in the pre-hospital uh, ER and ICU environments, we're the ones that are the front line that are seeing these people on a daily basis. We see how these codes run. We know what are the things that work. Those guidelines were created for people who maybe work in a clinic, and I'm not picking on any of my colleagues in different specialties, but maybe a dermatologist doesn't get to run codes every day. And so these guidelines... Hopefully not. Were a, <laughs> right? That'd be a bad yeah. dermatologist. Yeah, bad dermatologist, but... These guidelines were created as a construct for somebody like that so that they could go through the motions of CPR, check for a pulse, those sorts of things. But for those of us that are doing this on a daily basis, day in and day out, we need to be thinking about this in a different way. We need to be thinking about ways to cognitively offload ourselves so that we're not just making sure that the code is running optimally and efficiently, but also why did the code happen? That's what we're trying to do. And But we... What we don't want to do is substitute one for the other. We don't want to be trying to figure out why the code happened while we forget to neglect how the code is running. And we don't want to just run the code so well that we try and forget about 
why the code happened to begin with. They both need to be running in conjunction with each other. And in order to do this successfully, it's not going to be running the code the way ACLS or BLS tells us. It's going to be thinking about things outside of the box. Some things will have evidence. Some things will not. But at the end of the day, the hopeful outcome is neurologically intact survival. And hopefully this is a controversial topic for a lot of people, and I would be interested to see what people's thoughts are on this as well, Jason. Absolutely. I, I would love that to, to get some people's input and opinion. Um, I loved having you on the podcast and picking your brain on it. I, you know, it's been a lengthy discussion, so I'm just going to kind of go over your construct. And as we've talked, I think one thing you have to do as, as we were going through it is really get your micro skills down, get, you know, think a step ahead and be ready for the code so that you're not being detrimental or being inefficient in these cases. So let's break it down. And then Salim, you correct me as I go, if I'm doing something that contradicts what you do in real life. Let's do it. Prioritization. So we're doing CPR and defibrillation in a timely and efficient fashion. That's our mantra. That's what we're trying to do. You hear about a code that's coming in. What you're going to be doing is prepping your stretcher with the back aspect of your Lucas device and your posterior defibrillator pad. Probably, you didn't mention this, but I'd imagine you are also having your nurse mix essentially a dirty epi drip, putting an amp into whatever type of um, solution you have available in preparation for the patient. Yes, that's exactly what we're doing. Perfect. And so those are our major prep points, obviously having your defibrillator at bedside, but being ready for that transfer with your Lucas, your posterior pad, and you have an epi mixed, ready to go. When the patient gets there, you're putting the Lucas device on, you're putting the, the defibrillator pads in place, and you're starting CPR. You're going to be slamming in two humeral IOs, and you can hook one of those right up to your dirty epi drip, which will run in over the first three minutes of your resuscitation which if, if you're doing this in your mind, these things are happening within you know 10 seconds. As you mentioned, it takes 10 seconds to place an IO. It takes five seconds to put a person on a Lucas and press the start button. So then you have your access. You're going onto your airway. You're going to either place or connect to the pre-hospital LMA with your bag and your end title CO2. And as the code is going on there, you're then prepping for your POCUS, especially in PEA, looking for the difference between PREM and PRESS, pulseless, rhythm echocardiographic motion versus pulseless rhythm echocardiographic standstill. After you've done these things and you've focused on the resuscitation, you can turn your attention to the epi drip. How's that? I think that's a great summary. I mean, that's, that's exactly the order that if I had to prioritize things in the community, that's exactly the order I'm going in. But like you said, the reality is, is a lot of this is happening within seconds, if not overlapping with each other. So um, I think preparation is the key. Having thought this thing through and having the things that you need ready, ready to go. Excellent. I think that's a fantastic, simple closing. Salim, I thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I appreciate your time, your energy, your thought processes and research that you've put into becoming an expert, I would say, in this area. And thanks for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Jason, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, we'll have to do a lot more of these in the future. I really appreciate it. Excellent. A little foreshadowing, I hope. And yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, guys, again, please, please talk about this with each other. Talk about it with your staff and get back to us with successes, failures you've had so that we can all learn as we get better at coding patients. Thanks for listening.